Welcome to Fast Lane with Sarah Jane, a podcast for women who are on the move, managing life and family. Your host, Sarah Jane, is building a tribe and talking about the things that affect the daily lives of moms. You can expect real conversations about managing chaos, finding ways to take care of mind and body, and stepping outside your comfort zone on the way to living your best life. Hold on for a wild ride. Now, let's get started. So today I'm excited because I get to speak with Kathy Kleiner, who I reached out to because I saw her on a 48 hours episode. And I don't know why, but I got off the Peloton that night and I went upstairs and I told Ryan Klein, I'm going to reach out to this lady because I found her very fascinating and I think she really had a story to tell. Little did I know, I contacted her, she responded And she has way more of a story to tell than uh, just that 48 Hours episode. So first of all, Kathy, thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it very much. And I want you to tell people a little bit about yourself. I mean, you can't really tell me a little bit about yourself because there's a lot to tell. (laughs) So tell us about you. Okay. I was born in Miami and my parents were both Cuban and we lived in a little house in Miami and with terrazzo flooring and it was always hot. We had big fans. And when my daddy came home from work every day, I remember he and I sat on chairs, his big leather chair, and I had a little one with the table and we played Chinese checkers every evening before dinner. Mm-hmm. And I loved it. I think he let me cheat. He cheated so I could win, but it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. So every night we would do that. He would smoke his cigar. It's such a fun wonderful memory. One day in the evening, I looked out the window waiting for daddy and he didn't come home. And I I just didn't understand. So um, the next night I'm looking out the window and daddy didn't come home. And mama said that dad wasn't going to come home, that he passed away and that he was in heaven with my grandma. And of course I didn't understand that. I just just kept looking out the window waiting for my dad to come home. So this now became what I was used to, what I had to get used to. Well, it was mama, me, my brother, and my sister. That was that was normal. And how old mind. were you at that point? I was five when okay. my daddy died. When I got used to it just being our little family with my mom and my brother and my sister, my mama remarried. And my uh, stepfather was Harry, wonderful guy. He was a big German, and I couldn't have asked for a better stepfather. He adopted me, and so I took his name as Kathy Kleiner. And life was good again, and this was going to be a happy time. This was my new normal, so I could get used to it. I then was stopped there. I don't know if you want to go into lupus and everything now or wait for later. No, go for it. Okay. So this was now going to be my new normal with um, my stepfather, my mom married, and it was a good time. When I was in sixth grade, I was tired all the time. I had a low-grade fever, and I just didn't want to do anything. I'd sit with the teacher at PE time. So mama knew I had something wrong with me. She didn't know exactly what. She took me to my pediatrician. He knew I was sick and he wasn't sure what I had, but he knew I was sick 
and told Mama to take me to a specialist down in Miami at Jackson Memorial Hospital. So we went there and they didn't know what was wrong with me. But the first time I went, I was admitted to the hospital and I stayed there for three months. Being very ill and them just baffled, they finally figured out and diagnosed me with lupus. I had systemic lupus. Systemic lupus is the kind of lupus that um, attacks your organs. So it's not just in your bloodstream, but when I was 13 and diagnosed, the doctors didn't know how to treat me. Um, it wasn't known as a disease back then, and it, it really wasn't known for children to get that disease. So there was, there was no cure uh, for it then, which there's still no cure for it now. But I lived in the hospital for three months. And I remember my mom and my sister would sleep with us, sleep with me every night and we'd play. And, you know, I thought, okay, this is it. This is, I got to get used to this now. And they decided that I needed to leave the hospital because there's nothing they could do. They told my parents that I would probably live the year because I was so sick and they couldn't help me. There was a doctor from Cuba and her name was Dr. Labasquita and she approached my parents saying that she had a chemotherapy that she said is experimental, but she'd like to try it. And my parents were like, okay, please, anything, anything to heal my daughter. So I was put on experimental chemo at the age of 13. I lost all my hair. I had to stay home, homebound. My seventh grade of school I had a homebound teacher that came in a couple days, a couple times a month. And mom and daddy lived, worked in Miami. And at this point, we had moved to Fort Lauderdale, which is about an hour and a half from Miami each way. So they would go to work and I'd be at home. And I'd do my homework and I'd play with my dog and I watched a lot of soap operas. <laughs> and I remember I would call Zero, the operator because I was so bored, I needed someone to talk to. <laughs> and sometimes they, you know, say, okay, what do you want to talk about? And I'd ask for questions and help on my homework. And other times, you know, they said, we're too busy. We can't, we can't talk to you today. <laughs> so with my dog and me, I said, okay, this isn't fun, but I'm living through it. So this is it. This is normal now not being able to gauge how long a year was or um, the time that was passing. Finally, I asked my mom toward the end of the year, please let me go out, let me go to church. And she goes, oh, that's a good idea. And I thought, yes. So I got dressed in my prettiest dress and mama put a pretty scarf around my head and we went to church and we sat in the very, very back of the chapel and um, didn't get near anyone because my humane system was so low. Someone just kind of looked at me and I, you know, I was a possibility of me getting sick. So we went to church that day. We went and had ice cream and I was so happy. And less than two weeks later, I came down with shingles. So now I have no hair. My face and my neck are covered with the, uh, with the shingles. And it was 
it wasn't a good time. And at um, 14, you're about 14 at this point? I'm 13. Yeah, just turned oh. 14. So this was my seventh grade. Went through the summer and I became healthy enough that my parents said that I, you know, I could go back to school. So I went through eighth grade and then in ninth grade, I went to Fort Lauderdale High School. It was the best time of my life. I um, joined theater because I couldn't do PE or anything. With with the lupus, you're not supposed to overexert yourself or get emotionally overdone. You're just supposed to, you know, stay nice and calm. Since I couldn't do phys ed, I joined theater and I loved it. And I was able to act and, and be other people. And I wasn't that sick. Mm-hmm. Me, that sick little kid that was home in seventh grade. I was beyond that. And no one in theater or anything knew about that I had been sick. So I just wanted to be one of those kids. And I loved four years and I met such good friends and mm. it was a great time. It was mm. a great time. So unfortunately I had to graduate mm-hmm. and it was time then for me to go to college. Describe to me what your were you having a lot of pain when you were having the lupus or was it more exhaustion? It was more exhaustion. I had a low grade fever, so I didn't want to do anything. I had no motivation. I'd sit at the window and watch the kids outside and, you know, I had no, no desire to go out and play because I was just tired all the time. So you dealt with that at a very young age, like 13 is very young. And there's a lot of people Being a chiropractor, I see a lot of people who are in chronic pain or have chronic exhaustion. What is your message to people who have who live in that state uh, yet even today? Motivation. Put your mind into wanting to do something and try to get there. I know chronic pain and it just even little days, if you feel good, then enjoy it. And if you can make yourself exercise or anything and get a couple hours of good, then, you know, enjoy yourself for that time. Even though you know it's coming back, you have to be strong enough to work yourself through it. So now do you have any issues with the lupus? Yes, it's dormant. And then it comes back and I have very, uh, my muscles and my joints hurt really, really bad. And I I go through, I don't want to do anything and I want to sleep a lot. And then I, I have to work through that. I'm not going to let lupus come back. And like I said, there's no cure for lupus. So they put me on some medication just to kind of ease the symptoms. But it's not as bad as it was. Good. How about, do they, do they put you on a gluten-free diet at all? No, no. I was on a mixture of, when I was 13, a cytoxin and something else that was way back. And since then, as long as I don't get overdone over my, you know, allergic to the sun, that was another thing oh. that was something I couldn't do. I remember my mom, once I was able to go out of the house, I'd go walking with my friends or something, and my mom would be behind me with an umbrella running behind me <laughs> so I wouldn't get in the sun. And I'm like, Mom, and she's Cuban. It was just everything I had been through with lupus and everything she had been through. She was like, no, I'm going to take care of you. And I'm like, Mom, <laughs> put the umbrella down. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you live in Florida. Isn't that now, the sunshine yeah. state? Yes. So I remember that as a bad memory when it was happening. And then it's funny now. So right. it's funny how your mind just takes it from one extreme to the other. Absolutely. Well, that's great. Okay. So after you graduated, then what? 
I graduated from high school and was time to decide what college to go to. And there were a couple in Florida, in Gainesville and South Florida and, and FSU. And friends of mine were going to all, all three different ones. And I decided to go to FSU because it was far away from Miami and mamas I could get still pay and state tuition. (laughs) So that was my big decision to go to FSU. All right. What were you going to say? What did you study there? I, um, in the beginning, I did the basic classes and I remember I took archaeology as one of my first uh, electives and we went on a, a dig and I remember we were digging around and I broke one of my fingernails and I was thinking, oh my God, this this is just too physical for me. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. So that was my my big um, plans to do a big dig. So I tried just other little things, electives along the way. Okay. And what year was it that you went uh, to FSU? I was, it was 1976. I graduated in 76. So in the fall, I attended and was so happy. FSU was wonderful. It was a great campus. It was exciting. It was different. It was beautiful. It was so different than South Florida. And I I was just enjoying every experience and every sight and every smell. And it it made me happy. It was a good time. It was a good time for me. And you decided to join a sorority while you were there? Yes. Toward the end of 1976, I rushed with with other women from FSU. And when you rush, it, you get all dressed up in white and you like sororities. So you go to different sororities and you have like 15 minutes. So the sorority girls talk to you and you talk to them. And then 15 minutes later, you go to another sorority that you like and you kind of just pick a couple that you can go through during the day. When you leave, the sorority sisters talk about you and say, you know, is this a good person? Would they fit? And they kept moving on. I did not know, but one of my friends from theater was Susie White, and she was a Kayo. So she gave a good word for me and said to the other sisters how I would fit in well with Kayo. So we went to different uh, sororities, and during the week, it kind of dwindled down until they asked you back and you wanted to go back to them. And that's how you get pledged to a sorority. So Kayo asked me back and I was so excited. And um, so I pledged Kayo in uh, 1976, just before December. Okay, cool. My parents in the summer of 77 thought it would be a lot safer for me to live in the Kayo house than in a sorority. So they made this decision and the arrangements for me to move into Kayo. So you were living in the dorms prior? Yes, I was in a dormitory. It was all women. Of course, my mama wouldn't let me live in a co-ed. And we lived, we called it the nunnery. It was Reynolds Hall. Mm -hmm. And I lived on the third floor. And whenever we would hear noise, I'd look down off the stairs. And if it was a panty raid that the guys were coming in, we, the girls upstairs would get our panties and throw them down (laughs) so that we were part of the panty raid. Oh, we're funny. (laughs) Even though they didn't come upstairs, we were like, oh, they got my panties. (laughs) So that was a great time. That was a great time for me. In the spring of 77, I was initiated as a Kayo sister. And it was great. It was, I had to go to meetings in the house. And as a pledge, you get to do uh, 
answer the phones and take messages and anything the girls wanted you to do, you know, that's what you did. You kind of pledged. You could do anything that they said. So that was a great spring. I graduated and I mean, I was initiated as a sister and life was great. And then we came to the summer of 1977. Okay. And when did you move into the house? In the fall of 77. Okay. And you, you like that sorority life? You Yes, I, I loved being in the sorority. I was always around girls, and each one had their own personality, and it was just fun. My sister was older than I was, so we didn't grow up right close to each other. And so to have all these girls around me, it was like, you know, it was, it was fun. It was just life was great. School was going okay. <laughs> I didn't apply myself as well as I should have but I was enjoying every minute of it. When I had first saw you, I saw you on TV on 48 Hours, and you had been through quite a a traumatic experience. So would you please explain exactly what you had gone through while you were living there in that sorority house? I moved into the sorority house in the fall of 77. I remember Mama and I went and we went shopping so I could decorate my room and we went and got a beautiful bedspread and and sheets and everything. So it came up to January 1978. The day before the attack on the 14th, I remember it was, I woke up hungry so I went downstairs and got a bagel with cream cheese and jelly and I took it back upstairs and listened to Carolina on my mind and any other James Taylor song that was my favorite at the point. I was going to go to a wedding at 12 noon with a couple that I met at a little chapel I had joined, Wesley Foundation. So a bunch of students would go there and play ping pong and pool and just kind of hang out and watch TV. So that Saturday morning, I was going to go to the wedding at noon. And I remember so cold out and misty and just overcast. And, you know, I said, oh, dear God, it's not fair. They're getting married inside and then they're going to have their reception outside on the lawn. I said, it's just, you know, such a bad day. And I got dressed in my dark blue corduroy pants and my big woolly sweater and walked down to the chapel, which was maybe five blocks from the sorority house. And the wedding was beautiful. It was small and and just a couple people there at the chapel. And it was just nice. And when it was time for us to go outside to have the reception on the lawn, it was sunny. It was still cold. But it was clear and sunny and turned out to be just a beautiful afternoon to spend outside for the reception. After the reception, we went back inside. A couple of kids and I decided to go to a movie that night. So I said, well, let me go back to the sorority house. And I walked back and I was going to change and then go back and meet the gang. I went back. There were so many girls in the foyer when I got back and they're all talking about, oh, what I did today, I went shopping, look what I bought and, oh, I'm going on a hot date tonight. And, you know, it was exciting. It was just, you know, listening to everybody. It was great. When you walked in the front doors of the house, it was big double doors that opened. You had a beautiful grand foyer with a chandelier and straight back was a beautiful carved wooden stairway that went kind of curled up to the second floor. 
So I was standing in the foyer just listening and talking and, you know, it was great. I don't know how long I stood there. So I went upstairs and my room was to the right of the staircase. When you got to the landing, we faced, our bedroom faced the back of the house, which is where the parking lot was. And we had, it was nice. It was a beautiful room. And my room was the second door on the left. The first door on the left was Margaret Bowman's. Next, across the hallway from that was Lisa Levy. And then my room was right next to Margaret Bowman's. When you walked into our bedroom, it was kind of mirrored on each side of the room. It was about the size of a dorm room. And when you walked in, you opened the door. We had kind of gold carpet. And on each side, we had a bureau, a dresser. And then next to that was our little desk. And then next to the desk, just a couple feet, was the footboard of our twin beds. My headboard was against the back wall. When you looked into the room, the back wall was a bank of windows. It was beautiful. We had sunny windows and it was, you know, it was always light and bright in there. We never closed our curtains because we had planters hanging on the curtain rods. I remember we had macrame planters like with an owl and and all this stuff. So it was a great room and I had my beautiful uh, bedspread. And so I decided not to go back out to stay home and study. So I changed and put on my yellow flannel nightgown and my white socks and crawled into bed to study. My roommate also was at home and in her bed studying for school. We were there probably around 1130. We decided to go to sleep. So we turned off the lights and crawled into bed. I remember hearing a noise. It wasn't loud. It was the door rubbing across the carpet and hitting the wall next to it. I heard that and I kind of woke up a little bit. I was sleeping on my left side and it just woke me up a little bit. The next thing I hear is a louder noise. And what this was, we had a trunk between our two beds. It was a footlocker then. And it's a small trunk about, I don't know, three feet by four feet or five feet long. And we had that between our twin beds and we put things on it. From the trunk to our bed was maybe three feet on each side. I hear a noise and that trunk is being trampled over. It's being hit and made a louder noise. So I'm awakening a little bit more enough to focus my eyes and I see a shadow and my eyes are squinting. I see a shadow and you know it's a silhouette of someone standing next to my bed. And as I'm waking up more, I see this person raise his arm up over his head and he slammed it down on my face. And it was so hard when he did that, that my jaw was shattered in three places. I almost bit my tongue off and the blow actually ripped my cheek open from the corner of my mouth up to my ear and it just flapped open and you could see the mouth, the, my teeth and everything in my mouth. And also it shattered my shoulder when he hit. I actually felt it was more of a thud when it hit. It wasn't like you would expect it to be. It wasn't a sharp pain. It was just weird. It was just a thud. Hearing this noise, my roommate started to wake up. And this person just turned around and walked 
a couple feet to her bed. She was laying there with her arm up over her face because she had heard and seen what had just happened. So this person went over to her side and raised his arm and hit her. And I didn't know it at the time, but he had a piece of firewood that he picked up outside the back door when he walked into the sorority house. So what he had hit us with, a, a piece of log, a log for the fireplace. And after he attacked Karen, I was still awake and making noise. And I was screaming and yelling and, and as much as I could do and my face hurt now so bad. It felt like knives and my chin was, my jaw was broken and it was just the most horrific feelings. So this guy came back across the room and I now was laying cringed up in a little ball knowing that he was going to hit me again, but I made myself as little as I could. And my eyes are scrunched and I'm waiting. And the next thing happened is the light in the bedroom. There was a bright light that shone in the room. And even as I'm cringed, I could see the light kind of through my eyes. And I opened up. The whole room was illuminated. It was it was weird. It was just all bright. And I laid there in my little cringe and I see this person. I can see it now. It was more of a silhouette. It was, it was all in dark and, and I couldn't really make him out. I didn't have my glasses on and everything was a mess and scared. And this person got spooked. He kind of just kind of antsy and he turned around and ran out our door. The light then went down and the room was dark again. And I'm cringed up in my little ball waiting for him to come back and hit me again. And that light turned out to be a car coming in, bringing a sorority sister home from a late date. And since our room faced the back parking lot and our curtains were wide open, the light shone up into our room. And that saved us. That that made this person leave and left us alone. I passed out. The next thing I remember was there was a police officer next to my bed and I'm sitting up and I'm screaming and I'm yelling and I'm calling for help. And all I was doing was making gurgling sounds because my jaw was broken and I had all the blood in my mouth and I couldn't speak. So when this police officer was next to me, somehow I felt a little bit, I was safe because I knew this person wasn't going to come back because the police officer was there and everything else. And as hurt as I was and scared, I just had a little piece of, he's not coming back. I'm going to be okay. Next thing I remember the paramedics coming to my bed and attending uh, to me and trying to you know, attend to my wounds. And I remember one said, you're going to be okay, honey. You've been shot in the face and that we're going to take care of you. And that's because this was so wide open. And I thought to myself, I don't remember a gunshot. <laughs> you know, it was like, I think I passed out again because, you know, that I didn't know what happened, but I don't remember a gunshot. So they fixed me up and got me uh, as secure as I could. 
and the EMS put me on a stretcher and walked me down those beautiful wood stairs that weren't so pretty anymore. And I was on the gurney and they walked me out these big double doors and I laid there and as I looked up, I really couldn't see anything. It was rainy and misty and it was all dark, but I could see heads looking down at me on the stretcher. I don't remember how many, I two or three heads looking down at me and I'm looking up saying, what are they looking at? <laughs> what are they, you know, and I was confused and everything. So they walked me a little further on the stretcher and the lights were shiny. There was the fire truck lights and the ambulance lights and the police lights and everything was going around. And, and I heard people talking and the squawking of the radios. And in my mind, I was at the carnival. I, my mind took me somewhere where I was okay. I wasn't as scared then. I was in the carnival and it kind of made everything okay after that. So I was put in the ambulance and taken to Jackson, I mean, Tallahassee Memorial Hospital and the police officer rode in the ambulance with me. And again, that, that made me feel that this guy again wasn't going to hit me. So what time approximately did you get hit? The timing that I was given was around three o'clock in the morning. And that's what um, the police officers put everything together to timeline. So they said he came to me around three o'clock in the morning. And then who came in, like who found you? Were you able to, you know, because you said when you were screaming, but you were really gurgling, were you able to scream for help or did someone come in or what happened there? Actually, my roommate got up and walked out into the hallway. And of course, her arms broken and her jaw was broken. One of the sorority sisters saw her in the hallway. You know, it was dark and she didn't know what had happened. So she turned her around and walked her back into our room, turned on the lights and saw how she was beat up and then looked over to me. And I was sitting, rocking in my in my on my bed screaming again and gurgling and screaming and I didn't understand at first why no one came to help me so this was a big confusion and it was scary and at this point now my face is hurting so bad and the pins and the needles and the hatchets and everything I could feel at one time in my face the thud didn't go away it was replaced now by pain what time did the police get there I'm not sure. Pretty much right away. I know they called nine uh, nine one one, and I have no concept of time during that time. Wow, that that is, I can't wrap my mind around that because I can't imagine the pain that you're in, and I cannot imagine what was running through your head as you see someone standing over you like that. It was um, something that doesn't haunt me. Thank God, it is something I saw. I, I realize it i put it into this uh, into uh, reality i knew this is what happened and i could move on because it wasn't going to happen again i just put it into a, a life's memory and i wasn't going to sit in a box and i wasn't going to hide from him i was going to continue and not not let this define me do you dream about it no i do not really? when i was when i was in the hospital I was uh, wired shut in the hospital in Tallahassee. 
when my parents took me back to Miami, they took me to an oral surgeon about three weeks after I was in Tallahassee. And he saw that my jaw was not lined up correctly and that it would be off after it healed. So he had to re-break my jaw and put pins in the joints. And my chin was so shattered, he wrapped wire around it so that it would be able to heal correctly. So this is three months, I mean, three weeks after healing. And then he broke it and I was wired shut for another nine weeks. Do you have any pain yet in your jaw? Yes, I do. I had TMJ really, really bad. My last surgery was two years ago. To, uh, I've, had it, I've had it since the attack. And it hurts so bad before I have surgery again. It's just my joint is bone on bone. And it doesn't have the cushion in there. So I just wait until I can't even eat a pee before I go in and have surgery since I've had several. And it's just horrific. I mean, to go through that and it was just, you know, it didn't remind me so much of the attack. It reminded me of, man, my jaw's hurting, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, I don't want to live like this. So I do go in a couple years for surgery. You know, some people would fall victim to this and they would I really appreciate how you said you didn't let this define you because some people would have let it define them for the rest of their life I feel that I know that I was a victim I was attacked I am a survivor but more than that I've learned to thrive in my life I, I don't even want to be just a survivor. I want to be known as someone who continued to live and was happy. I'm very, very happy in my life. That's wonderful. And, that's, and that isn't the end of your story. But in respect to your time, we will do an episode two, I think, with you because you have a lot more to discuss. But I would like to know what your message would be to someone that has survived a traumatic experience like this. I can tell how I did it, and it helped me. It helped me a lot to heal. One thing is I had to depend on myself. I had to heal myself and make it better. I didn't want to live with that on me behind my back, and so I dove deep inside of myself, back under my soul, and I pulled out my strength. And I knew once I had that, no one could take it away from me. And I've used that strength so much and so often that it allows me to persevere and to do whatever I want to do or need to do. And it's not always easy. I mean, I've talked with women that are going through horrible divorces and they said they're just, you know, taking advantage of me. And, and I've told them about her strength and she's gotten back with me and said, I'm not there yet, but they're not walking on me as much as they did because I'm using my strength and people have that and they have to know when they pull it up, they can use it. They can use it a lot or a little bit, whatever they need. But one of the other things that I've done to help get me over the trauma and this black thing that was all around me and that held me in its, in its sights. And I didn't want that again. I didn't want to live in a box and I had a goal. I had something I wanted to do. I wanted to do it for myself. And I had an island way up front, in front of me. And on this little island was one palm tree and one chair. And I wanted to get to that island so bad. 
And it took me a long time. I took a lot of baby steps and I couldn't do it all at once. And as I went forward with my little baby steps, I looked behind me and this evil and this blackness were behind me a couple baby steps. And as I walked and it took maybe a month or two to do this, it was so taxing and so scary. I reached my island and I sat in my chair mm -hmm. and my feet in the sand and I looked and this thing was gone. It wasn't even behind me anymore. It was just gone. And I used that visual just to help me know that I was I was going to do that. He wasn't going to stay in front of me or right behind me. He was going to go away. And it, it did. Well, I love it. And now you're helping people find their own little islands, aren't you? I hope so. I mean, it can be to go shopping in a mall or whatever they need that they they need to do to have a goal, to know that they can get there and feel better about themselves, whatever it is, visualize it. And it helped me a lot. And it has helped other people to walk away a bit from what they've endured. I think that is amazing. But like I said, that is not the end of your story. So we shall meet again and tell the rest of your story. But I really appreciate you coming today to talk about your experience. And next time we will wrap up what else you have been through and how you have, you've really found peace and you've, you've made a, a wonderful life for yourself. I, I love life. It's wonderful. I used to say you have to keep running in life and you never know what hurdle God's going to put in front of you that you need to jump over. And now that I'm older, I'm like, you got to walk really, really fast. <laughs> and when you see an obstacle, kind of look around the corner because it's going to be something good and you want to get to it. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of the way I've, I've changed my thinking, but it's the same thought that you have to be ready to get over whatever hurdles in front of you. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Kathy, for chatting with us today, and we will chat again. Thank you so much for inviting me, and appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fast Lane with Sarah Jane podcast. If you like what you hear, share the podcast and hit the subscribe button so you get updates on all new episodes. And we truly love feedback, so ratings and reviews are appreciated. 